to The Quest. Quest for questions. Questions? Big questions. I'm Heidi. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kim, the innocent bystander. Yes, that's your role, Kim. So today we're talking about odds. Odds. Oddball. Odd man out. So we're talking about the odds of what? Of anything. The odds that you'll find the golden ticket in your Willy Wonka chocolate bar. How about the odds that one solitary drop of rain will fall out of an overburdened cloud and hit you directly in the eyeball the moment you look up at that same cloud? Ah! Or maybe the odds the Titans will win the Super Bowl. Ooh, tough odds. Good question. We asked a Titans fan. He said this. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, our odds have skyrocketed since we picked up Marcus Mariota. Odds go up? Odds go down. How about the odds that Trump will win the presidency? Or the odds that the Foo Fighters will go to Italy. Or the odds that a large asteroid will hit your neighborhood. I'd like pessimistic thoughts for 500, please. Thank you. Okay, let's make it personal. What are the odds I'll get cancer? The odds my kids will choose to follow Christ. Those are some tough questions. So how do you even calculate odds? I mean, scientifically. Oh, I I love statistics. It's what I do all day. That's Dr. Don Obert, a friend of mine and one of the foremost statisticians in the United States. I called and asked him, so, Dr. Don, how do you calculate odds? Okay, well, to calculate the odds of anything, you look at the number of factors, determine if they are dependent or independent, and calculate the odds or chance that something could occur at random. For example... Looking at the odds of rolling a fair die ten times and coming up with a six each time. What are the odds? Again, assuming a fair die, the odds are the same as getting any other number ten times. Of course, this is a very simple example, and in real life science you must deal with a hypothesis, different types of error, various assumptions, and experimental design and models. Ultimately, we can make a judgment as to whether or not something occurred at random or was the event outside the normal distribution of events. Statistics is an odd science. (laughs) Are you calling me odd? (laughs) Never. You know, to me, the big question here is, what are the odds that we can trust God with the odds? Or maybe just, what are the odds we can trust God? Now, that's a good question. That's the big question. Big question. So who in the Bible had to trust God with something big? David. Big grouchy giant. I'll give your flesh to the birds. Noah, big boat. Uh, I think I'm allergic to dander. Jonah, big fish. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> big problem. How about Abraham? He's known as one of the fathers of our faith, right? Right. Big liar. She's not my wife. She's my sister. He was scared. So he lied? Twice. She's not my wife. She's my sister. Big case of deja vu. Okay, so what about when Abraham had to trust God to give him a son? But he didn't. Didn't trust God. Hagar, Hagar, Hagar. So the odds are Abraham won't trust God in his old age, right? Hang on, Heidi. Let's be fair. Abraham did trust God sometimes. Didn't he obey God and move away from his home country? Oh, right. And don't forget, he also took his son Isaac up a mountain and tied him to an altar. That was pretty trusting. I have to say that didn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, common sense. Ah, Kim, but trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. (laughs) Nice. So basically, Abraham is a mix of trusting and not trusting just like the rest of us. Yeah, I think so. So let's jump to the end of his life. Okay, so at the end of his life, 
He would have been around 140. And we finally have a really cool example of when Abraham trusted God. Another really cool example of when Abraham trusted God. Right. He needed to find a wife for Isaac, who was now around 40. Ah, an arranged marriage. I'm 41. I could be okay with that. I could arrange really? it for you. <laughs> yeah. So Abraham is wrinkled, white hair, white beard, and he calls his most trusted servant over to him and says, Put your hand under my thigh. Ew. No, thank you. That would have made me more than a little bit uncomfortable. So I looked this up and found out it was just a way of making a very serious oath back then related to future generations. Kind of like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, because that's the way we make serious oaths today. <laughs> right. Okay, continue, Jonathan. All right, so he makes a servant promise. Swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not find a wife for Isaac from among the daughters of these Canaanites, but will go to my country and my own relatives. His own relatives? Like, what is this, Kentucky? Ouch. Uh-oh, are we going to offend some people there? No, no, my family's all from Kentucky. It's fine. Okay, good. So back then, they wanted to keep their family line pure. More important, they wanted to keep their faith pure. No idols. Right. That meant marrying a God-fearing second cousin was a good thing. In fact, it was recommended. Probably not a good idea today. <laughs> no. So Abraham's servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? And Abraham replied, No, God promised me with an oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. God will send his angel before you to find a wife for my son and bring her back here to him. And so Abraham's servant put his hand right under Abraham's thigh <clears throat> and said, I swear. And the servant set out with 10 camels loaded down with beautiful gifts for the city of Nahor, 468 miles to what is now northwest Mesopotamia, a journey which probably took him about two weeks. Two weeks to be really nervous about finding the right girl. Yeah. Yeah. What are the odds he's going to stumble across a God-fearing single woman from his master's family line? Yeah. Not. Good. Odds. It must have been some serious pressure. I mean, future generations were depending on him finding this one woman. I know, right? So he arrives in Nahor. And then he might have asked himself, where would a God-fearing single woman hang out? The perch? No, the well. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> so he goes to the well, and he's looking at all the women. Does he just pick one? No. First, he makes his ten camels kneel down by the well. And he prays. Oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham. Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So if the odds weren't slim enough before, he had really set up some slim odds now. But how slim really were the odds? Oh, the odds are mind-numbing, really. I, I can't even wrap my mind around them. That's Dr. Obert again. We decided to ask what would be the odds of one man traveling 468 miles... And arriving at one well... At one moment in time... Asking one woman for a drink... 
the odds of her saying yes and offering to water his camels too exactly. exactly the way he had prayed the odds of abraham's servant having this exact conversational exchange at this exact moment in time and having this woman say the words he prayed and then be from abraham's family you know the odds are staggering i couldn't even calculate it so just for fun can you try okay uh, we could estimate it. Uh, we have at least five factors here. The number of days in a week, seven. The number of minutes in a day when somebody would be potentially drawing water from a well. Let's say it's about 480. That's 60 minutes times eight potential hours. The number of families in the area, which, well, we don't know how many that would be. Uh, I would say at least 20. Uh, the number of women at the well, which we don't really know that either, but probably at least 20. And potential verbal responses from the woman, which is three. Three potential verbal responses. The first is a flat-out no. The second is yes, but not offering to water the camels. And the third is yes, and I will water your camels too. What about no comprendo? She could say that. <laughs> yeah, she could. True. So if I multiply these five factors, it would be over a million possibilities. And that is not considering that the required response was not a multiple-choice answer for Rebecca. To consider that she would say just what the servant prayed for becomes inconceivably unlikely. No, it seriously can't be calculated. The fact that a woman from this one family on this one day at this one minute at this one well responding to the servant in this precise way, you know, it can only be God. A lot like the odds our little planet can sustain life. Wait, what? Who's that? That's Dawn's wife, Jackie. She's a research scientist, too, specializing in microbiology. Yes, they're two scientists married to each other. So, Jackie, you're saying the odds of Abraham's servant finding Isaac's wife are about as crazy as the odds that Earth can sustain life? Yes. For one, what are the odds our planet would have the perfect amount of gravity and inertia to keep us from falling into the sun? And we also need the perfect amount of carbon dioxide at 0.04% to regulate the surface temperature of the Earth. Add to that the way the Earth orbits around the sun and is tilted at 23.5 degrees. That gives us a wide zone where we can live. Not too cold and not too hot. So the Earth is turning around, getting warmed by the sun, kind of like roasting a marshmallow over a fire pit? Exactly. I hate burned marshmallows. Right? Only toasty brown. Don't eat the burn part. Mm. So, Jackie, I have to ask this. What are the odds that a large asteroid could hit my neighborhood? You had to ask that, didn't you? Actually, we should all be really thankful for Jupiter, because with such a giant planet in our solar system with a huge gravitational pull, about 200 times more asteroids and comets hit Jupiter than Earth. So, thanks to Jupiter, the odds of an asteroid hitting your neighborhood are slim. But what are the odds our solar system would even have a Jupiter? Or that the Earth's axis would be tilted 23.5 degrees? Or that we would have the perfect amount of carbon dioxide? Yes, I would have to call those divine odds. I think what she's saying is that we're all living on this little planet in the midst of the universe, living and breathing against all odds. Right, like the odds of Abraham's servant finding this particular wife for Isaac. So his camels were kneeling down and he was praying. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. There she is. The servant hadn't even finished praying, and a beautiful woman walks into view with a jar on her shoulder. The servant hurries to meet her and says, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord. 
She quickly lowers the jar to her hand and gives him a drink. After she gives him a drink, she says, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they've had enough to drink. Exactly what the servant had prayed. So she quickly empties her jar into the trough, runs back to the well to draw more water, and draws enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man gazes at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord has made his journey successful. When the camels are finished drinking, he takes out a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. <laughs> nice, I'd be like, I'm in. And he says, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. It was Rebekah from Abraham's family the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. The servant bows his head and prays. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me directly to the house of my master's kinsman. Directly to the house of his master's kinsman. Incredible. Against all odds. I suppose we like to calculate odds because it makes us feel more in control somehow. But odds are, we aren't in control, are we? Life is uncertain. But we know this. God is the blessed controller of all things. So, what are the odds we can trust Him? One hundred percent. I'm Kim. I'm Jonathan. I'm Heidi. And you've been listening to The, the Quest. Special thanks to a pretty large and very talented group of people that put that together for us. Heidi Petak, who happens to be the wife of Brian Petak, our, our global missions pastor, wrote and directed that. Ryan Mitchell, who's on our staff, produced it. It's a lot of talent we have in this place. It's just encouraging to see it, hear it, I should say, stewarded so well. What are the odds, right? That, that's, the, that's the angle that they chose to take, and we worked on this together as far as the big idea of this text. What are the odds that you can trust God? And as I thought about that, and I've listened to this you know, little radio show a bunch of times now, what continues to sink in is, I have a really easy time trusting God in some areas, and I have a really hard time trusting God in other areas. And so if you're going to answer that question the way they answered it, like what are the odds you can trust God 100%, you got to think through, do I really believe that? Yeah, I believe it about this stuff over here, but do I believe it about this stuff right here, right? That's where the rubber meets the road. The things in your life that, that, that maybe are so important to you or critical to you or so dear to you or that you're so afraid of that like you don't, you don't have a hard time trusting anybody with that. I mean, when it comes to our kids, when it comes to our well-being, when it comes to our health, when it comes to our careers, when it comes to our financial security, when it comes to our relationships, there's just, you fill in the blanks for you, but where I want to go with kind of the rest of this message, so to speak, is I want to ask you if the odds that we can trust God are 100%, how do we go about doing that? And so this is where we learn from this servant. So this morning is kind of part A of the story, you know, the whole story is over 67 verses in Genesis chapter 24. In fact, go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already, the Genesis chapter 24. We covered the first half of the story this week. Next week, you'll hear the rest of the story. 
as Paul Harvey uh, used to say. So in the rest of the story, the focus is going to be on Rebecca, right? Because we just heard God provided her for Isaac, but she's got to say yes, right? She's got to agree to this. You'll hear about that next week. What I want to focus on this morning is the servant, right? This servant is a remarkable man. He has actually a very remarkable faith. If you think about it, this was the biggest moment in this guy's life. Like this was the most important mission he'd ever been asked to do, right? He, he gets that. I think he really understands that. And he enters into this question of, will I trust God with the most important task I've ever been given? And what we have heard through the story already is he finds that he can trust God even with the things that are most important to his success, even with the things that are most dear and near to his own well-being. Now, how did he get there? Right? What can we learn from his faith? That's where I want to go. And I was thinking about how to do this this morning, and I thought, you know what? Let's look at his prayers. Let's look at this man's prayer life. Because doesn't that reveal a lot about where we're putting our trust is by looking at our prayers? I don't care about the language you use when you pray, if it's fancy or if it's not fancy. In fact, I prefer the non-fancy kind of prayers. But what I care about, what's really revealing about my own heart and your heart, is the substance of our prayers. What do we pray for? How do we talk to God? How do we relate to Him? That reveals a lot about us. It reveals a lot about Him. So let's look at the prayers. Let's do a deep dive on these two prayers and see what we can learn. The first is in verses 12 through 14. Now, when I read these prayers, I want you to do something. I want you to pay attention to what gets repeated. All right? Because what gets repeated is is what we're going to emphasize, what we're going to talk about. So let's look at it starting in verse 12. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Then after his first prayer, God shows up. God does exactly what he asks, and he prays a second prayer, a prayer of gratitude. Look at it in verse 26 and 27. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. What did you notice? What, what got repeated? This, let's actually like interact with me for real. Somebody call out something that got repeated at least twice. The, the emphasis, let's just pause there for a minute. The emphasis on his master Abraham. Okay, we'll talk about that. That's actually significant. What else got repeated? Did you loving hear? Kindness. Loving kindness. That's, man, you guys got the right answers, one and two. That was good. Yeah, loving kindness toward his master Abraham. That's the root of the prayer. Like if you want to think about the big idea and you're in your own Bible study, you study a paragraph and you're thinking, what's the big idea of this paragraph? Well, the big idea of this man's prayers is show loving kindness to my master Abraham. That's his prayer. We'll talk about why that's so significant in just a second. Forget about all the details for a minute. The details of the camels and the, the, the well and all that stuff. That's just how God was going to go about showing loving kindness. But the root of the prayer, the big idea, the, the big request is, God, would you show loving kindness to my master, Abraham? Isn't that interesting? Well, what is loving kindness? Maybe the most important Hebrew word in the Old Testament. 
We've talked about this word a number of times in here. Um, Michael has taught on this word in a way that's really clear. I want to give you the definition he's taught on this word because I think it's a great definition. Loving kindness is God's loyal love. Loving kindness has two components. It means that God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and God loves to be loyal to his covenant promises. Chosen people, covenant promises. It means when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise and he loves the people that he is in covenant relationship with. He, his heart is for them. He could never break his word, ever. That's the nature of God. In fact, you might think of it this way. Hesed, which is the root word, that, that this, this, the word that this comes from, loving kindness is translated in, in the NASB. Hesed is not only what God does, it's who God is. He loves. He is loyal. He is a promise keeper. So here's the beauty and almost brilliance of the servant's prayer. He's actually asking God to do what he already promised he would do. Remember the covenant that God made with Abraham? This man knows about that. Remember all the promises that God has made? I will make you a great nation. How's he going to make him a great nation if he doesn't have a wife for Isaac? You see, this guy gets it. He's like, just show up, God. Do what you've already promised to do. And secondly, he's not only asking God to do what God already promised to do, he's asking God to be who he already is. You see, it's just a very brilliant prayer. Anytime you know the outcome and you're going to pray for the outcome, you can have 100% likely, 100% confidence that that outcome is going to come. It's like you know watching a football game yesterday on DVR and you've already seen the score and you're just re-watching it. That's what this guy did, right? He's just praying for God to show up and do his thing. Now, there's a lot of brilliance in that prayer, but I want to keep digging because we've got to get it down to a kind of a more personal level for us. Now, Summarize this principle before we move on this way. The odds are never against God keeping his word. The odds are never against God keeping his word. And by the way, that's one of the reasons we teach the Bible the way we teach the Bible. We've got to know God's word. We've got to know the promises, right? If you want to know what God is up to in the world, you're going to find the answers in the scripture. Now, you know, it's not going to have Franklin, Tennessee written in it. It's not going to have Rob Sweet, you know, individually, my name, your name written in it. But you want to see what God is up to at the macro level, at the big picture level, how he interacts with people, how he faithfully lives out his hesed, loyal love with those he's in covenant with. That's where we find that in the scripture. He will always be true to his word. But... What does that have to do with you and me? Like, really? Like, where does my little world, your little world, intersect with God keeping his big picture promises that we read about in the Bible? And there's the tension that I, I want you to be feeling right now because I want this to be real for you. I want you to see yourself, in a sense, in these, this servant's sandals. Now, here's what I love about this servant. Not only does he fully understand the Hesed character and promise of God, but he also understands his own place in the story. Now, what is his place in the story? Did you catch that little phrase when he says, as for me, this is in verse 27. He's saying, God, you did all this for your master Abraham. You did all this. You showed up in your loyal covenant love for Abraham. As for me, you have guided me. God has guided me to, in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Here's what this servant is essentially saying. I have a part to play. 
The drama's bigger than me. The story's bigger than me. The promise is bigger than me. But I have a part to play. And it's an important role. But it's not about me, right? So he's bold and he's humble at the same time. I love this about the servant. And the way that he can be bold and yet humble in his communication with God is he understands the promise of God and he understands his place in the story. I think those are the two keys. Promise of God, your place in the story. Now, here's where our stories intersect with the servant's story, with the big story of Scripture. Just like the servant we find ourselves swept up in this same drama. Beautiful drama. Beautiful storyline of God redeeming his people, starting way back in the garden and ending in the city that is still yet to come. And guess what? We're in the middle of that. We're in this same drama. We're swept up in it. And I'd say just like the servant, right? You have a role to play. I have a role to play. But the real story is ultimately bigger, grander, more beautiful, more breathtaking than you and me. But here's the thing. You know, that doesn't have to diminish your part, your role. It doesn't have to diminish God's communication and knowledge of you personally. Why is that? Well, there's something else even deeper that we learn from this servant, you see. In the unfolding drama of Scripture, Abraham points to someone else. We've talked about this before in here. See if you remember. Who does Abraham point to ultimately as you read your entire Bible? Abraham points to... Yeah, you guys are a little hesitant on that. That's always the right answer, right? It's always the right answer. Jesus, right? He points to Jesus. Now, here's what you got to understand. Do you see something in this? uh, The servant is humble enough to realize he goes to God, he approaches God through someone else. In his case, that's someone else that where he approaches God is who? His master, right? Abraham. He keeps repeating, God of my master Abraham, do this for my master Abraham. God, I know you're close with my master Abraham. Show up for Abraham. You see how he's approaching the father through someone else? Who do we approach God through? Jesus. Who did Abraham point to? Jesus. What's our part in this, right? We have a mediator. We have a go-between, just like the servant did. This allows us to pray big, confident, bold, and even practical prayers. Let me kind of, that, that's the big idea. Let me drill into it, right? And we'll see how this plays out. Uh, I, I want to show you a couple verses from Galatians chapter 3. You don't necessarily need to turn there. We'll put them on the screen. We're going to do a quick flyby of Paul talking about how Abraham's story is connected to our story as Christians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Abraham's, uh, Abraham, <laughs> Paul, is doing something brilliant here. He, he's essentially retelling the Abraham story in light of the truth that it always pointed to that the Hebrew people weren't aware of until God chose to reveal it in his perfect timing. And that is, it's a seed, singular. Jewish people, he's thinking, did you ever wonder why the word was singular in the original? Of course, you know, it would have been all original of them. <laughs> it was pointing to a single person. It was pointing to Jesus. Now, this is, next verse is where you and I are going to come into this. Verse 26 of Galatians 3. For you are, he's talking to Christians, you are all sons of God. I'd add daughters of God, right? You are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
And then verse 29, he's going to clear the bases, right? Grand slam. He's going to really drill it in. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Do you see yourself in the story? Christ's follower, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're in the story. Here's another way to put it. If you put your faith in Jesus, then God's hesed, loyal, faithful, covenant-keeping love, applies to you personally, you. He loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promises. You're a part of a chosen people of God, a recipient of the covenant love of God. And here's the best part. And and this is where you and I get off track, okay? And this is where the servant gets it right. And I think you and I get it wrong. The best part is God's loyal love toward you is completely outside of you. (laughs) It's completely outside of your ability to deserve it. It doesn't diminish it any. It's just as special, just as personal. But it's not about you. Like, it wasn't about the servant. It was about Abraham, right? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. This is the connection that we find in this story. How was this servant approaching the father through Abraham? How do you and I pray? We pray in the name of Jesus, right? You ever wondered, like, why do we pray in Jesus' name? Well, there's really two elements of that. One is Jesus is our gateway. He's our access. We come to the Father through the Son. That's an important concept for you to really wrap your brain around. It will give you much security. I'll unpack that in a second. But the second idea is we not only come to the Father through the Son, but we are to pray in alignment with Jesus' will. What was Jesus about? What did he do? This is why we study his life. This is why we follow him. We call ourselves Christ followers. We want to align our energies with where Jesus is going, where Jesus is going. You see, this is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. We have a mediator that we approach God through. Now, why is this really good news? Because some of you are thinking, you know, I, I, you're probably right, but I kind of want it to be about me, you know? I have this idea of me and God, you know? And there's like nothing in between us. But that's still true. In fact, it's even better, right? Here's why this is good news. How proud of the son do you think the father is? How much delight do you think he has in his son that obeyed him perfectly? How how much just pleasure and pride do you think he has in the son that did what you could never do? Would you rather have the Father, you know, approach you directly in your mess and in your sin and even in some of you that are really good and your self-righteous puffiness? Or would you rather have the Father approach you through his perfect son, Jesus, who has done no wrong? Now, I'll take curtain number two, right? Any day. This is why this is really, really good news. Now, what does all this have to do with odds? I want to take it back to that. What are the odds that you can actually trust God with the most important things in your life? Well, here's what we've learned from the servant. Okay, let me recap. We've learned from the servant, you've got to understand the promises of God and you've got to understand your place in the story. That's what you know. That's what you've got to know to have faith like this. The promises of God, your place in the story. What are the promises of God for you? The promises of God are that he will faithfully fulfill his covenant, hesed love for you because you're an heir. You're part of the promise through Jesus. 
Where's your place in the story? Your place in the story is that through faith in Jesus, you're part of the covenant. Therefore, you can rest completely in God's loyal covenant love for you. You never have to doubt it. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday, what you're going to do later on today. You're in that love. Now, you can still get yourself in a ditch through making some really bad choices, but God doesn't love you any less because it's not about you. The servant understood this. Now, how does this play out in real life? Okay, this is where I want to go to kind of start landing the plane. How does this play out in real life? I believe that there are basically two ways that you can approach the Christian life. And, and, and I've approached the Christian life various times in both of these ways. Now, I'm not talking about the point of your salvation, okay? Are we clear on that for a minute? I'm talking about the Christian life. Like, you know, one, once you're saved, your ongoing way of, of living in Christ, as Paul would say, there's two basic ways you can approach it. You can make it fundamentally about you, or you can make it fundamentally about Jesus. Those are kind of your options. Now, what do I mean by that? To make it fundamentally about you means, okay, I guess I'm in and I'm, and I'm going to get to heaven eventually because of that Jesus thing and I believe in that. But, but man, I just, I don't know if I can trust this father. I don't know if he has the right intentions for me. I don't know that he's pleased with me or proud of me. I feel like once I get my act together someday, he may be okay with me. But for now, I guess I'm saved, but I don't really feel his love. I don't feel his delight. I'm not secure in resting in that. I want you to imagine what it would have been like for this servant if he would have approached this mission that way, which I think is the way that you and I often live our Christian lives. What if he would have approached his mission that way? Here's what he would have said. How in the world am I going to live up to these expectations? What if I'm not enough? It's going to take all the effort and discipline I can muster to make the journey to Mesopotamia, find a young unmarried woman from Abraham's family. It's going to take all my cleverness and all my charisma to talk her into coming back with me. I better not fail or God might wish he'd chosen a different servant. If I don't reach my potential, maybe he'll kind of love me anyway, but won't he secretly be disappointed in me? You see, a servant could have made it about him took a different approach. He says about Abraham, God made a promise. God will keep his promise. And as for me, I'll let God lead me. I'll show up. I'll play my part in the story. I'll live out what I've been called to do. But this isn't up to me. I don't have to earn a thing, you see. Just like the servant our confidence in God's love and faithfulness depends greatly on whose identity we place that love and confidence in. Will it be on your own performance or will it be on the performance of Jesus? We come to the Father through the Son. We're rooted in Christ. Therefore, we can know God's deep and personal love for us and yet simultaneously know it's not about us. You see. Now, I want to just get on a soapbox for just a minute and, and talk about something that I've noticed that's kind of snuck into our popular Christian culture. And it, it comes from a good place, right? It comes from a place of wanting everyone to know that they are personally loved by God, like loved beyond more than they could imagine. And is that true? 100% true, 100% true. But here's, here's what it sounds like. This is what I've noticed slipping into popular Christian culture. This idea that God kind of sits around all day daydreaming about us. 
Th this idea is sort of that, that, you know, if God had a fridge, your picture would be on the fridge, right? Now, can I redeem that image for you for a minute or at least try to? Because there's some truth to it. I want you to imagine that picture on the fridge. Whose picture would be on the fridge if God had a fridge? Yeah, see, now y'all are warming up. Jesus' picture would be on that fridge. Now, here's the thing. I'm trying to redeem this image for you. Zoom into that picture. You see Jesus? He's getting closer and closer. Zoom into that picture. Keep going. Keep going. Just keep zooming in until you can see each individual pixel. There you will find your face. You are in Christ. You're a part of the body of Christ. Yeah, you're on the fridge, but it's through the Son. He earned it for you. God chose you to be a part of this body, this image. Yes, he has delight in you. Yes, he's numbered the hair on your head. But outside of Christ, apart from Christ as your mediator, you're actually an enemy of God. He loves you. In Christ, he can be with you. In Christ, he is proud of you. And it has nothing to do with you. And some of you are thinking, man, that kind of stinks because I'm actually pretty good at impressing God. Right? Some of you are thinking, that's the best news I've heard all week because I'm lousy at pleasing God. Right? Let those of you that are over here be humbled and, and out of gratitude, love your Savior more. Let those of you that are over here be lifted up and encouraged and secure in God's delight in you. You are in Christ. The servant came to the Father through Abraham. You come to the Father through the Son. Don't underemphasize that theological truth. Pray from that place that deep well of theological surety that God will keep his loyal promises to his son who earned it and you are in. You are along for the ride, so to speak. And some of you are thinking, well, what about work? You know, don't, we, don't, don't we want God to be proud of us? He's proud of his son. And if you get that, you'll be free to obey out of a different place. Now, yes, obey, but obey from a different place. Not from a place of trying to earn it. Not from a place of unrest, but a place from rest. A place of peace. A place of mutual love with your Savior, Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. This is how you know you can trust God with the intimidating odds of your life. You are in Christ. This is how you can pray big prayers, knowing that he's listening and wants to answer these prayers, will answer these prayers. You are in Christ. This is how you can know that trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't seem to. It's not about you. Thank God. It's not about you. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the truth that the beauty of Scripture would point us to a man, would point us to you. I thank you for the truth, God, that we can pray to you right now in the name of Jesus Christ, that we can know that even though none of us are deserving to stand in the presence of a holy God, we access you through the Father. And I thank you that you've taken the pressure off of us of having to maintain your delight in us because we can't do it. It doesn't, doesn't matter how hard we try. And I, I pray for those in the room that are really struggling because they know all too well their depravity and their guilt. And they, 
parts in their lives that they are having a hard time getting through and maybe there's something in their past that they just feel such shame over. Father, would you free them up to know that your son did what they could never do and they are just as much in Christ as someone who seems on the outside to be really, really good. And God, I pray for those people that are really, really good, like externally. They, they, they do a lot of good things, and God, their heart is to obey. That's so good. But would you help them to obey from a different place, maybe? A place of rest, a place of security. They can't do anything to impress you, yet you love them. You have their best in mind. You want them to obey so that you can continue to show up in their lives in deeper and deeper ways. Father, I pray for all of us, God, that we would have such security that we would understand that we could no more separate ourselves from your delight in us than a, a, a little pixel as part of that picture could jump off the page and plop on the kitchen floor. It's not gonna happen. Could we delight in that? Could we rest in that? Could we serve you with new, refreshed hearts? In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing together?